0: Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, it's a mailbag episode. Should you let AI pick your stocks for you? We talk about that and more. Stick around. It's coming up next.
1: Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Kraftwerk Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions.
0: Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to see you, buddy.
1: Hey, what's going
0: on, Ross? It feels a little bit lonely in here. I feel like we've had a bunch of guests. We very much appreciate everybody that has been on the show, but it's just us this week.
1: I like the intimate setting. It's nice to break it up with guests from time to time because we only know so much stuff. So it's good to have another voice. But I always appreciate when it's the two of us, the old gang back together.
0: Yeah, and I've gotten some great feedback on a bunch of the episodes. I got a few texts about the tipping episode that were really good. And this week, we're doing a mailbag. And so we dove into our email. And there was also some good feedback for some of the past episodes as well. So really appreciated that and uh, appreciate folks reaching out. I thought one of the ones that was cool, we got an email about the Car Buyer University episode. This came to us from Eric and said it was really impressive that we boiled it all down to about a 30-minute interview of of all the different things. He had a lot of experience in the car industry wholesaling and all sorts of other stuff but that we were able to kind of boil that down so thank you eric we appreciate the feedback um and that's really just a a shout out to, to chris johnson so um thought he killed it on that and we appreciate it speaking of emails it's a mailbag week we've got a lot of stuff to get into apparently doing the last call for the mugs by the way inspired a bunch of folks that otherwise maybe wouldn't have emailed us we are officially out By the time this airs, by the time you hear this, the last of the mugs has gone out. We did run out of those last four, so not everybody that asked for one will get one. I apologize a little bit because I want everybody to get a mug if they wanted one. But at the same time, we've been saying they're running out for months, and uh, they have. So anybody that doesn't get a mug this time around, we'll send you whatever the next swag item is as soon as we actually decide on one.
1: We're working on that. We have a couple ideas. I think the one constant is we're going to find something that is easier to ship and less breakable than a mug.
0: Yeah, we, we've we had some broken mugs. We shipped a mug to Italy.
1: Really? I didn't even know that.
0: You didn't know that? Yeah, no. I, I spent an uncomfortable amount of money shipping a mug to Italy because somebody asked for one and I was like, ah, oh, that's kind of a fun story. Let's go ahead and send it. You had to fill out customs forms and all sorts of stuff to do that. Yeah, no, that was... It's been, it's been a process to send all of these to you, but we're, we're very appreciative of everybody listening and uh, hope that you enjoy your morning Joe or tea or whatever you drink from your Check Your Balances mug with a smile on your face.
1: It is my favorite mug. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the mailbag and see what people have to say.
0: So Dan, this one caught your eye and I think it really excited you because you had just read something on it. So let's start with Krista's question. Krista writes in and says, with all the reports that Social Security is going to run out of money, have you changed your advice on whether to start taking Social Security payments as soon as you're eligible? Love the show. Dan, what do you think?
1: I recently read the actuarial status report of the Social Security Trust Fund, which came out in March 2023. That's why this question caught my eyes, because I had some fresh data at the top of my head.
0: What an exciting evening you must have been having to be reading the Social Security Trust study.
1: Oh, it left a mark. It left a mark on me. So I think we need to understand what it means for the Social Security Trust Fund to be depleted versus Social Security running out of money. So the Social Security reserves are expected to be depleted by the end of 2023. That means the extra cash that they had built up in reserve for the program are going to be spent down. But that doesn't mean Social Security is going to go broke because Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system. So all the workers in the country, most of them at least, are still paying into the system to provide benefits who are currently collecting. So I think it's important to distinguish those two things. They might have less emergency cushion, like we tell everyone that they should have their own emergency fund set up. Social Security is about to blow through theirs, but there is going to be money still coming in. So we're expecting to be able to pay 100% of benefits until the end of 2033 is the expected one, 10 more years of enjoying, after which they still expect to be able to pay 80% of benefits until 2097. So that's a pretty big window. Not only do I think it's safe to assume that we can probably expect something in the range of 80% beyond the end of the trust fund reserves. But that still gives us a window of about 10 years for Congress to take action to increase the trust fund balances, whether that be by increasing taxes, which would be wildly unpopular. I'm not sure that anyone would make a move to do that. Or by increasing the wage base on which Social Security is taxed.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. So to Chris's question, if you were 62 or 67, if you were eligible right now, and another two to three years or or even seven or eight years of waiting indicates that you would get more money. By that stat, if you wait the eight years, if you're 62 and you wait eight more years, in theory, you've got two years until they cut your benefits by 20%. Is that how we should be interpreting the trust fund running out?
1: I think it's possible, but I think it's unlikely. I think when you start, it is much harder... For the government to step in and say, we're going to cut your pay that you're entitled to because you've been saving into the program versus making those cuts on people who have yet to begin filing. I think it's much more likely that they're going to push the age up for full retirement age, which we've seen in the past, or they're going to start changing the formula to pay out smaller amounts to upcoming retirees.
0: That tends to be my view as well, because when they've made changes to the program in the past, they have made them really far out. Now, really far is kind of a closing window if we're saying that we're 10 years away from this thing, in theory, being out of its additional resources. So that flowing money from currently working people to not working people, that's the bulk of it. That's going to be the bulk of it for the foreseeable future. How do they make up the difference? In, in my mind, and, and I don't think that this is Completely wrong. I think of Social Security really as an obligation that our government has made to us. So now that may not be how it's written into the code. I, I honestly don't know that. Right. But so in theory, could the government divert other dollars from the budget to say, hey, we promised these people a Social Security payment? We're going to pay it under the full faith and credit of the US government. It could do that. It could make cuts to the program. Uh, if I were planning right now, for younger people, and I do this, I tend to handicap Social Security by somewhere in the 30 to 40% range. I assume they're going to get less. Now, part of that is just in the name of being conservative. right? So sometimes I do that just as a stress test to say, hey, let, let's assume that all of this isn't there. I have some clients that tell me, we want to cut it entirely. Don't show me anything from Social Security.
1: Which, by the way, I think is fine, even if I think it's unrealistic. Like, I would rather plan for that scenario than rely on something that's potentially out of my control.
0: I agree. I I think that's a very dim view, though. I I think that's a super pessimistic view. And and for people, and we say this all the time, your plan needs to be a reflection of your views. So if that's what you think is going to happen and that's your truth, let's put that in the plan. But that's going to mean a lot more horsepower on your savings engine, right? If you assume for a person that's been a pretty high income worker that social security is going to be between 30 and 40 grand a year, you're talking about an additional 800,000 to a million of savings as a target per social security earner to make up that difference. That's a big savings chunk that you're going to have to overcome on your own. The the result of that Worst case scenario, you end up with too much money, right? I mean, like that's not the the worst result for most of the people listening. Going, yeah, if I ended up with an extra million bucks, am I going to be sad about that? No, but again, I always tie the money back to what lifestyle does it allow you to live, and what lifestyle did you give up in order to do that saving, right? If that meant pinching in places where you didn't have to, that's where it would be an unfortunate situation for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's always a balancing act and I'm increasingly seeing that as a goal for people I'm working with is how do I find ways to not force myself into oversaving and build a construct in my life where I can feel okay spending more and know that I'm still re- working my way towards the long-term goals I'm looking for.
0: So here's how I would probably do it. If I was at full retirement age, which is going to be 67, and I'm within 3 years, if my plan was to wait, I would probably still wait. Because I don't think that they're going to cut benefits for people that are currently receiving it. I just can't imagine the number of voters that that would immediately turn on their heels, regardless of who did it, right? I mean, like I I just think if you cut that pay, when you look at how many Americans that is their only retirement resource, Right? I don't think that's the majority of the listeners to our show. But when you think about the swath of our population, that that's the only thing they have in retirement, I don't think you can come in and say, we're going to reduce it by 20%. I just think it would be a disaster. So you know, other changes they could make. I mean, right now, only 85% of Social Security is taxable. If you've got other income, they could make more of it taxable. They could make it taxable at a higher rate if you've got other income. So there's a lot of other kind of weird ways that they could close the gap. I just don't personally view it that they're going to make that direct cut to everybody receiving it. So I don't know that I would change my planning in that way. But I understand if you're thinking that way. And if you're going to take it early... For that reason, there's a big difference between taking that Social Security payment and saving it and turning that into a resource. Turning that, like if you don't need the money today and you've been delaying claiming, you can always take that payment and invest it. And then you've got additional cash if and when there is a cut. You know, I think there's a few different ways around it. That doesn't bother me, but I don't think you're going to see a direct cut to Social Security, but history might prove us all wrong.
1: Yeah. But if you are planning on claiming early before your full retirement age, you also need to be aware that if you are still earning income, it's possible that your Social Security benefit will be reduced by your earned income before your full retirement age as well.
0: Correct. I wouldn't take it at 62 if you're still working and it and you're going to face a reduced Social Security because the income does count against you and it's above a pretty small level. I want to say it's like 30, 35 grand, somewhere like that.
1: So, So just be careful with what you do. Be intentional about it. I think my guidance is still not to claim at 62 as early as possible out of fear. Because I think if you're close enough to be making those kinds of decisions, you're probably close enough where it won't be impacting you if they do make a cut.
0: All right, Dan, we've got a lot more questions. We've got to move on. Let's move on to a question. I apologize if I mispronounce this. I think it's Lubin. He says, Hey, boys, long-time listener, first-time email writer. Very good pod. Enjoy the variety of topics and your takes. But I'm here for the mug. We'll see. We'll see if we've got one of the four left. I'm going to literally send them out on the order that they're in. But he's got a few questions here. Number one, would you rather stack up more dividend stocks or more growthy stocks in a Roth account? What's your take on the topic? Let's start there, and then we'll take on the other two. Dividend stocks or growth stocks in a Roth?
1: So my default has always been to put the more growthy stocks in the Roth IRA to earn more bang for your buck from that tax-free growth that's just how i have always done it now you need to be wanting to own those growthy stocks if if that's not a part of your plan this becomes a moot point but to be able to compound tax free growth at the rate of like some of these crazy tech stocks i'm much happier to let that sit and be able to pull money out without having to pay those taxes
0: here's how i think about it and this is going to be a frustrating answer whatever i think the biggest total return is that's what i would put in the roth right and ultimately That's what we're deciding on. If you're getting dividends along the way, most dividends that end up being paid out at the qualified dividend rate, that's going to be treated the same way as a long-term capital gain for you. Now, if you're in a hyper high tax bracket right now and your long-term capital gains rate is 23.8% at the federal level because you're facing the net investment income tax and you're facing a 20% capital gains tax and you're in a high income state, where you're going to pay six, seven, eight plus percent on your dividends because many states don't treat the dividends differently than standard income. Well, then, yeah, I think there's an argument to be made for getting those dividend stocks out of a taxable brokerage account. But for most people, a capital gain along the way that is a qualified capital gain, a long term capital gain, is not that bad. And reinvesting those dividends, whether it's in the Roth or whether it's in a Taxable account. I I don't see it as that different. If I thought those growth stocks were going to like completely shoot up, right? If if you're Peter Thiel and you're going to put your early investment in PayPal in your Roth IRA, yeah, go ahead and stick the growth stocks there. That's that's a that's a crazy investment that he made. He's got like a billion plus dollars in his Roth IRA as a result. Well done,
1: Peter. Yeah,
0: killed it. You know, so so that's an incredible strategy. So if you've got something that could balloon like that. Yeah, put it in the Roth. Anywhere you can get tax-free growth is a good thing.
1: Here's a wrinkle. So so it always depends. That's why I think Ross's answer is good. But let's say you don't need the money. If you don't need the money, the other alternative is you can easily hold growth stocks in a taxable account, never pay taxes on them because they're not spitting out anything taxable for you. And just you can die with it. (laughs) Pass it on to the next generation. Taxed never. You know what my
0: issue is with that, Dan? You don't control when these companies get acquired or what they choose to do at a management level. I mean, how many companies truly just get big forever and are the types of companies that you'd really want to die with? That you could make that decision today, not knowing your life expectancy, and go, yeah, I'm going to hold this forever. I think it's probably a small list. I think that's the goal. I think that's a an admirable goal to say, yeah, I hope this company remains good forever. That's the kind of Warren Buffett investing that we aspire to, where you say like, uh, yeah, if, if an idiot runs this company, it's still going to be fine. This is such a simple business. It'll be good forever. There will be no other competitor. There's enough moat that for the next 60 years of my life, I can hold it. Uh, I I think that's more likely on like an index fund than anything. And you're going to have a little bit of turnover on an index fund, but I don't know. I, I agree. I agree with you in, in, in principle. I just think it's tougher than, than just doing that.
1: Yeah, you need to get lucky. You need to be good about picking a good basket of stocks and then get lucky with one of them. But in general, I think the growth stocks in the Roth IRA are good, or as Ross puts it, I think probably best is whatever you think has the largest return prospect.
0: Let's go on to the second question in this email. What do you think about using an AI chatbot for stock screening and selection? Is it a good idea to set an AI basket. Let's just do the first part. What do you think about using an AI chatbot to do your screening and selection process? Dan, what say you?
1: I think that's where the future is headed. Like, I'm sure you can create incredibly strong AI-powered tools to do stock screening. There are already a lot of great tools that allow you to do that. So if we trust the integrity of the data, then I think that's a great place to generate ideas from more than anything else. I wouldn't necessarily go into chat GBT and say, which five stocks should I buy right now? But if I had specific screener questions and I can say, show me 10 stocks that fit criteria one, two, three, and four, and then dove into those, I think that's a real big time saver and gives people access to information that would otherwise be very hard to find. So I'm very much supportive of that.
0: Yeah. I, I think people that operate on screeners... The trick to a screener, whether it's AI or or just a standard one, is what are you screening for? Coming up with your variables is way is way harder than running the screen, right? I mean, w- whether you're doing it in like Morningstar or Bloomberg or you know whatever tool you're using to do your screening, I think that figuring out what you're going to screen for, whether that's evaluation metric whether that's a growth metric whether that's you know wh- whatever it is you're looking for. I think that's way harder than actually running the screen. So I would suggest you've got the same challenges whether you're using an AI chatbot or not to Dan's point. Yeah, if the data is good, the data is good. So if you know what you're looking for and the faster you can find it, sweet. That that's going to get you there way faster than anything else. One of the investing teams I worked with specifically didn't start with a screener. Because essentially, they believed a lot of the screens that people run are looking at the same things. And if you're hunting in the exact same pool as everybody else, you're going to find the same stuff. And so they specifically, as part of their process, did not start with a screener and kind of built bottoms-up analysis without anything else. Again, I'm not saying one's right or wrong. If your process relies on screens, and and that's how you want to do it, I think anything you can do to quicken the process is going to help you Spend your time on things that you find more valuable. So, I'm not against it. I would just caution you that the screen and the ability to do it quickly doesn't make the screen any better.
1: I'll quickly share that one of my favorite screening methods, a lot of people do this. I'm going to attribute it to Monish Pabra, who's a great investor who basically decided that the best possible thing you could do is copy the greatest investors. And his screen was always to look at what Warren Buffett was buying and try to figure out why. So he would start with that. It's like, what's Warren buying? This is interesting. Why would he care about this and then work into that world of whatever that happened to be and decide for himself whether he wanted to dip his toe into either that same security or that sector in some way?
0: yeah, I think that same thing is is interesting with Buffett because people also try and figure out why he's selling like when he dumped the airlines that you know he either made a mistake or he made that decision to try and save the airlines because he didn't think that the government was going to bail them out in the middle of COVID if he was an owner. He didn't want the optics of the government bailing out one of the wealthiest investors in the world. And, and so, yeah, looking at the why on what somebody's doing with that decision, I think is always interesting. That gets really interesting when you're looking at insider buys and sells, right? There's almost an infinite reason that insiders sell a stock. There's very few reasons that they will buy it. So, you know, those types of things, I think, are really interesting indicators. Let's go to the last one. He says, this is a little bit more technical. What do you think is the best, easiest way to track stock compensations and dilution of outstanding shares? Companies are very loud when they announce stock buybacks and kind of quiet when issuing new stocks. Investors hate to see it after glorious buybacks that the amount of shares outstanding is not really reduced. Dan, how do you think about the buybacks?
1: I tend to love buybacks if they're well-constructed and done at the right time. As far as tracking, I don't know that there's a great screen for tracking this type of thing. But if you're looking at a company, you should be able to see on their financial statements how many shares they have outstanding. So that's a number tracked on most balance sheets, kind of all the way at the bottom if you want to see which way they're trending. And you can graph a line and see if there's a consistent trend downwards where they're repurchasing shares or vice versa. If it goes upwards and they're constantly issuing shares, that would be one reason to, to dive deeper and potentially be cautious about treading forward with a position that's going to be continually diluted. I mean, the other thing you could do is in the cash flow statement, it's showing you the net repurchase of shares or financing from shares. So again, this is, this is something I do very granularly when I'm looking at a specific company. But this is information that you should be able to find pretty easily.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to give a shout out to a tool that you, I believe you can use for free still. There are paid subscription versions of it. And the tool is Ticker T-I-K-R. Their website, ticker.com, TIKR.com, T-I-K-R.com, uh, I think is an incredible resource. It is a good way to standardize and look at financial statements over time. And you could look at the cash flow statement, as Dan said, and depending on how many years you're looking at, you're going to see repurchase of common stock. You can see issuance of common stock. So you're going to see those things. You can graph them. You can do all sorts of stuff. But I think being able to get that data into an easily digestible format is what most people are going to struggle with. Like, Yeah, it's going to be in the 10K. It's going to be in the quarterly statement if they're doing a buyback. But you just need somewhere that you can go and and look at that over time on a pretty easy way. So shout out to Ticker. Um, there's some other resources that would do this as well that are probably, I'm sure you can get some of this data on like Yahoo Finance or something like that. Certainly on paid services like a y Charts or, or uh, something even more advanced. But um, that would be where I would look for it if I, if I were just going to to kind of take a quick peek and say, is this company really buying back shares in a way that's meaningful? And then, obviously, as you think about buybacks versus issuance of shares, where the company is in its life cycle tends to be really important. Early stage companies, recent IPOs, companies that are not yet profitable, and so they're trying to conserve their cash, they tend to give out shares, right? And so, you're going to see that quite a bit more on a younger company that they are issuing shares, sometimes too many. And so, you know, I think total shares outstanding. Again, that's something you can graph very easily if you've got a good tool. So I I would check that out.
1: Yeah. Again, in the cash flow statement as well, you can look at stock-based compensation. So that's another thing you can see is how much are they paying out in stock? Like Ross said, if you were early on in your cycle and really trying to attract people through that upside of equity. Um, Second, the shout out to Ticker, they do not pay us. I would love if they did.
0: No, that 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 is a that was a free plug that we just gave them, but I do think it's a great resource for anybody that wants to look at individual equities and wants pretty easy access to some good data. All right, Dan, let's do the last one that I think we have time for today. These are a couple of questions that come to us from Trestan. Number one, I'm actually going to do his his questions in reverse order because I think the first one's gonna be easier. Is a money market or high yield savings account a good vehicle for saving for reoccurring short term goals like a vacation? or infrequent medium-term goals like a car purchase. Is that your go-to vehicle, Dan? Yes. 100%. That's that is almost the definition of why we like a high-yield savings account, right? Your cash, what you keep in easily accessible cash, whether that's a money market or that is a savings account that's FDIC insured. Its purpose in your life is twofold. One for the things that you can't predict, and two, for the things that you're predictably going to spend money on soon. That's it. That's like literally why we want money in that category. Money markets, not true cash, not insured. They're paying a lot right now. I've seen a money market fund break the dollar. We've told that story before. Um, that was '08, my first year in the business when the the prime fund, I think, broke the dollar. True cash is always my preferred method if it's going to be something super short-term, but either of those I think is a perfect option there. Yeah, totally agree. Let's go to the second question. With the Secure Act 2.0, would it be wise to invest in a 529 under my or my wife's name and fund it to the $35,000 max at 15 years and then convert it to our Roth or even overfund it and use the remainder for our future kids? So we're we're gathering from that that Treston doesn't currently have kids, but might open a 529 in his or his wife's name, either to fund future education goals and or to just convert to a Roth. Do you like that as a strategy?
1: Now, I believe we've addressed this on the show in the past, but the reason he's asking this question is because the Secure Act 2.0 opened the doors to move money from a 529 college savings plan into a Roth IRA as kind of an incentive to get people to save for college, whereas before anything in a 529 needed to be spent for qualified education purposes. Otherwise, you were facing taxes and a penalty when you pulled money out. Now, there is a lifetime limit of $35,000 on being able to do this transfer from a 529 to a Roth, and you need to meet other certain stipulations too in order to be eligible to do that.
0: So... As I read this question, the thing that went through my mind was, why would I do this rather than just do like a backdoor Roth IRA? So a backdoor Roth IRA, if you're not otherwise doing like a deductible plan or something like that, you would make a non-deductible contribution to an IRA. And then you would convert that cash into a Roth IRA. Because the contribution you made is non-deductible, your hope is that this is basically a tax-free conversion or a very low-tax conversion. Now, who can't do that? Well, people that have big rollover IRAs or even insignificant rollover IRAs. If you've got pre-tax money in an IRA and a non-deductible contribution, you're going to have a mixture of pre-tax and taxed money when you go to do that Roth conversion. So I'll try and keep this simple. But if you, if you put... 10 grand in over a couple of years in non deductible IRA contributions, but you already had 10 grand in pre tax IRA. No matter what, when you go to do that conversion, you're going to be 50 50 split on how much of it's taxable. You don't get to isolate the after tax piece when you do the Roth conversion. So, 529 could be a really good choice for somebody doing that, where that's easier than doing the backdoor Roth IRA to get money into a Roth. Other reasons. Well, you get a state tax deduction in a lot of states for putting money into a 529 plan. It's not big. I just looked at it recently in a state for a client. It was like the first $5,000 of income. It was a 4.25% tax rate. So if the husband and the wife did it, they put 10 grand into a 529, saves them 425 bucks in taxes. Okay. That's fine. That's not, I, there's not that much work that I'm going to do for 425 bucks in, in tax savings. Like If that's hard, I'm probably going to skip it. If it's something I otherwise wanted to do, I would do that. Your threshold might be different on how much effort you're willing to put in for a few bucks in tax savings. I think that would be a reason to use the 529 versus a backdoor Roth. If you're expecting to have future kids, one more reason. that Yeah, go ahead and just get the 529 started. Why not? you're starting the clock on tax-free growth. So I do like the strategy. I don't know that it's the first thing I would do, Dan.
1: Yeah, I agree. So I I think there's a hierarchy. So first, if you're eligible to make direct Roth contributions, I would start there. We could explore backdoor Roth contributions if those are available to you. You've got your, your work plans. If you're saving into Roth 401ks there and able to get money into Roth, that's great there too. And then if you have extra money to save, this could be a great way to do it as well because you can make a Roth IRA contribution and a 529 contribution, especially if you're planning on kids in the future. Getting this started could be a value, but I would be careful not to overfund a 529 if you do not yet have people who you expect to use the money from the plan for qualified education. So funding it nominally to kind of get to that $35,000 threshold over 15 years, you know, maybe that's something you could start, but I would kind of keep my foot lightly on the brakes and not go too crazy with it.
0: Yeah. So if I was going to fund over 15 years with a target of getting to $35,000, if I earned 6% on that money, which I think is reasonable for, for an investment, maybe that's on the low side, depends how you view it. Hopefully. What I would put in is 1500 bucks a year. That's not a ton of cash. Now, I think the rule on Secure 2.0, I think the money has to actually soak for five years before you even do this.
1: Yeah, so those last five years could not go directly to your Roth. And you can't take the 35000 at once to a Roth at all. It's up to the annual Roth contribution limit. So that would replace any Roth IRA contributions you made in those years.
0: So at a maximum, you're probably putting, what, two grand a year into the account over 10 years and then letting it cook for five years. And then you're hoping that you can draw that back out into a Roth over a handful of years as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. A lot of moving parts there. And nobody has done it. Like, literally, there are zero people who have executed this. So I think we're going to learn more as far as the mechanics over the next few years. And then it's going to be, what, at least 15 years before anyone tries to execute this thing.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot to learn. I, this wouldn't be my first option, but there's a lot of reasons to like it. There's a lot of reasons that this could work, especially if you are seriously considering kids. It it gets you a jumpstart on that. You can just change who the beneficiary is. So, yeah, I mean, there it. I don't see the harm in it, but I do view it as a risk that they could come in and clarify and say, "Well, we didn't mean that the parents could move it into their Roth IRA. It has to go to the kids Roth IRA."
1: I'm waiting for that right now. I,
0: I think that could be a real clarification. Um, because I, I think immediately a lot of people had the same thing that we're talking about is like, wait a minute, I can just use this as another sneaky funding mechanism for a Roth IRA. Right. I'd use the other ones first.
1: Yeah. Because I I think the way it reads is you can transfer it to the beneficiary's Roth IRA. Well, I could be the beneficiary, right?
0: You can change who the beneficiary is.
1: Yeah, They they didn't
0: close that loophole that you can't change the beneficiary, which that's an important loophole. They shouldn't change that because that's what lets you, if you overfund for one kid, change it to the other kid. If you choose to go back to school, right, there's a lot of flexibility built into the 529 based on that. But I do think that we're going to learn more before this starts actually happening.
1: For sure. It wouldn't be the first time they've come back later and we're like, whoa, never mind. Remember what we said? Scrap that.
0: Yeah. Well, we really appreciate the questions. They were thoughtful questions this week. Uh, There's others that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, This is really exciting for us. Quite frankly, Like when we started this show, right? when you start a podcast and you don't have many listeners yet, you're like, oh my goodness, can somebody please ask us a question so that it's not just me and Dan guessing what to talk about every week? We're very appreciative that you all are engaged, that you're writing in, that you want one of the last remaining mugs or whatever that next swag item is. If you've got feedback on what we should do, Send that in. Check your balances at Outlook.com. We appreciate you. We'll catch you all next time.